Friends, welcome back to Meeting of the Minds. I'm Gene Zanetti, your coast-to-coast mindset coach from Winning Mindset. Excited to be joining you all today. Today we have a very special guest that's coming to us, Dr. Mark McLaughlin. So he's an author, neurologist, wrestling hall of famer, you name it, he's got it. He's joining us tonight for a very special episode of Meeting of the Minds. We're going to bring him on in. Uh, it says we're unable to join. Dr. Mark, it says we're unable to join. I see the green dot next to your name, but for some reason it's not allowing me to click in. Team, we're excited to have everyone tonight. Very special episode of Meeting of the Minds. He's got a great book, Cognitive Dominance. I'm sure he's written other ones, but let's let's see. Let's try to get this all going. Unable to join still. Yeah. We're unable to join. What was your weight class? Okay, so it's that kid. I was 140 as a senior in high school, so as a freshman I was 119. Sophomore, 125. Junior and senior year, 140. Freshman year of college, freshman and sophomore year, 149. And then my last three years of college, I was 157. I'll try my phone, okay. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's actually better on the phone. I could tell you that the quality, of, the quality of my phone is actually better than the quality on my Mac. I just got the latest phone more recently. So it's that kid, do you have cauliflower ear? And thanks. Yes, my wife actually thought I had a, a, some kind of defect when we first met on our first date. But that's okay. We got through it. Okay, there we go. Dr. McLaughlin, request to be in the live video. Waiting. It should be connecting. This looks good. That's uh, like the old AOL days where you would be like waiting. You'd see the dots, 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 and then you'd see the running man. And you're like, yes, I'm in. If you guys, if anyone remembers the, the running man, give me a pound. If anyone on here is old enough to have been on AOL and remembers the running man that knew you were on the internet, give me a pound on here. Chase Crocker, you remember the running man. Uh, uh, uh. That's the, that's the apartment. All right, it says we're waiting. Let's, let's try it again. Let me try to. Mitchell Askew asks, how old am I? I am 35 and 11 twelfths. So in other words, I'm going to be 36 on July 5th. There he is. Hello. How's everything going? We scored. Finally. My goodness. That's it. They say persistence is the hallmark of a champion, and Dr. McLaughlin had it in spades. Technology. (laughs) I kept getting cross-faced, but I finally got the leg. You plowed through. That's great. We meet again. You were the keynote speaker at the National Wrestling Coaches Convention. I believe that's when we first met a few years ago. 
It's great to see you again. How are you doing, Jeff? Good, good. Yeah, Excellent. all's well. All's well. Happy Thanks to be here. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Real excited to have you. So I heard a lot about your story going from wrestling to becoming a neurosurgeon. I know as you know, obviously you have your book, Cognitive Dominance. Um, you spoke to West Point, the military academy. They just had their graduation and everything. You worked with them, peak performance, right? Something like that. Yes, exactly. The Center for Enhanced Performance at West Point. That's Dr. awesome. Yes. That's awesome. That's right up the river from me. I'm literally on the Hudson right here. Right by the George Washington Bridge. I guess if I, you know, just stayed on a little bit longer, I'd be up just, there. A canoe up there. It'd be a little, little bit of a paddle, but you could do it. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> so I wanted to get your, I wanted to get your feedback on some more of like the cognitive and the, and the neuroscience because obviously we work with athletes on their mindset, but getting more of the neurology and, and the, the the physiology of what's going on in the brain. So I was curious about neuroplasticity. Everyone talks about the importance of having a growth mindset, right? A fixed mindset is believing that I'll never get better or I am as I am and I'll never change. A growth mindset is I believe that change is possible and those people usually have a cha can change with enough hard work. So can you talk about neuroplasticity and what's the science behind that? Sure. I mean, there is a preponderance of evidence that when you um, learn something there are literally changes in the cellular nature of your neurons and the supporting cells of your brain. Literally, RNA, DNA gets um, activated to create new proteins, which will actually structurally alter the cells and then ultimately the pathways that those cells communicate on. If you think of your brain, it's just got a series of highways. And you know, if you build a new highway and then ride on it more and more and more, it's just gonna become clearer and more efficient and more effective with, with uh, less weeds around it. And so you know, learning these kinds of skills is really something that you can, you can do um, in a step-by-step -step fashion, which will allow you to create new pathways. And literally we see thickening of brain layers of cortical margin around areas of skill sets. This is particularly well described in the meditation literature where people are spending more time in this, this sort of automatic mindset of just trying to experience what their body's like. But we see it in cultivating gratitude and we can, we can do it in, in building a competitive edge as well. So it's, it's truly, um, it's, it's physical, it's structural, it's biochemical, and it's, 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 it's certainly you know, neuroanatomy that's connecting itself. Excellent. So you're, it's not just, I was born this way and that's it. Your brain actually changes with practice. You really can teach an old dog new tricks. There's no question about it. I mean, one of the greatest examples I'm lucky to have was my father who finished a 50 year law career and at the age of 73 went back to college and got his PhD in history and then went on to write a book at the age of 88, uh, military. Wow. So it's one of those things where you can learn new skills. You need to keep an open mind. And it's very important for you to, um, to if you're going to live a long, healthy life, to, to pick up new uh, skills, to learn a new language, to take you know, puzzles, to, do, to meet new people. It's always good to also you know, have friends from different decades of life. These are... So you get to talk to people who are experiencing different phases of their life. 
not only can you share your experience with them, but you can learn from them. And, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting in our world. Let me say the word elderly to you. What does that mean? It means somebody frail. It means somebody, you know, delicate. It means somebody to, you know, to take care of. But what about the word elder? What does that mean? That connotates something, someone who's a valuable member of society, someone who is learned, someone is, who has the traditions and knows what's important in life and can give you better focus. So it's really important as we get older to understand we can increase our, our neurocognitive behaviors. And, and, um, and when we're younger, we need to set those pathways on the right track. That's why it's so important to extinguish bad habits as quickly as possible and to ingrain uh, good habits so that you've got the railroad tracks that are going to last you for a long time. Oh, boy. Speaking about the brain, you got, you got me going in all different directions here. A lot of things I want to ask you. So, um, okay, so how do we set our mind on the right track from, me, from a young age, developing those good habits? I guess maybe related to sometimes we think, okay, I messed up today. I had a bad day, whether it was my diet, my exercise, or just regular habits that we have. And then we say, well, today I blew it. I'll just get it, you know, I'll get it tomorrow or I'll start next week. Can you talk about how that's not good because you're, you're actually thickening, you're, you're making a stronger neural pathway between in the bad behavior, correct? Right, even if, even if you, you don't want to say I had a bad day, it's okay, this was a mistake. I'm going to change right now. In other words, don't save your diet till Monday. Don't start a good habit later. Start it right now so you don't strengthen the bad habit and make it more difficult to change. Is that right? True. And what I tell people is you got to build in some safety nets. You know, you, no one can be a complete strict dieter all the time. You've got to allow yourself some flexibility uh, with life. And so you're going to have to go off your diet one or two days. So the main goal is to really set really realistic goals on where you're going to be. Uh, don't set yourself up for failure immediately. So that's an important part of it. But if you can achieve smaller micro goals, you're reinforcing those pathways for, for bigger success. Um, and then again, like you said, it's like it, it's your mindset. I mean, I love the name of your company because it's just so absolutely true. Um, your mindset is your mindset. I mean, Muhammad Ali said it best. You know, when you, you, know, you want to take a, an action, so many times it becomes a belief. And then say it so many times. So the deep convictions have to be, you know, things that are going to say, okay, am I going to look at obstacles and let them uh, irritate me? Or am I going to let them tell, say, hey, this is a new opportunity for me and I need to take advantage of it? One of the things I remember, you know, as a younger wrestler, and, you know, wrestlers have so many, all athletes have so many great resources now for working on their mindset. Um, it's incredible. Back, back in our day, you, know, you didn't have a lot of this. I was fortunate enough to talk to uh, Nate Zinzer when I was young and got, got, some, got some coaching. But really, for me, myself, thinking back, I was very vulnerable to like outside events that might throw me off, like a big match or something important or, you know, a minor injury that would distract me. And I would, I would allow that to distract me. Whereas now, um, you know, as a doctor, I try and take those distractions and say, okay, how am I going to apply this to make me better? Um, there's a story I talk about in my book where I'm about to go on, operate on a person with an occipital tumor 
which was fairly deep. So it was in their visual cortex. And it's, it's a hard case, uh, you know, probably a hundred times in my career, but I hadn't want, done one in a, in a long time, like a year or two, because we had gotten a new, new person in the practice who was a really slick tumor expert. And so I would hand him off my patients that had tumors because he was becoming our tumor expert. But he was out of town and I needed to do this surgery because the patient was sick. So I was taking right. this person to the operating room and um, I got a call literally about an hour before the surgery that my father had been diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia, which is essentially a death sentence for an 88-year-old man. And I, I thought to myself, oh my God, like, how am I going to be able to operate on this person with this in my mind? This, I, I'm not going to be able to keep my mindset. I'm not going to be able to keep focused. You're just taking yourself out of the game by talking to this doctor. And um, I had to figure out a way to kind of get over that and to function. And what I said was, you know, I know I want to go see dad and I know he's reeling right now and I am too, but I got five hours here and um, what would my father want me to do? He'd want me to do my job. He'd want me to do my very best. If he needed the surgery from another doctor, would that, would we, what would we do if that doctor came up and said, I, I can't give you my best? We'd be disappointed and we'd be worried and concerned. So what I said in this situation is I said, gosh darn it, I'm going to dedicate this operation to my dad. I'm going to make this the best operation I've ever done. I'm going to, this is going to be a tribute to my father. And then I went out there and I did what needed to get done. And I went and I finished it and it went great. And then I went to go see my father. So it's one of those things where as you mature, I think, a mature athlete realizes that you can take any distraction and you can turn it into an advantage, whatever it is. Say you're the right. underdog. That's a great advantage, right? Let's say, right. you know, you sprained your ankle. Well, hey, that means I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be stronger on my other leg and, and, and nobody's expecting anything of me. So I'm just going to do the very best I can. So you got to figure out a way to take your advantage, take your disadvantage and make it an advantage. Right. In psychology, we would call that reframing or reappraisal of the situation. Right. And, and I know there's, there's some people that just, they suppress things. They don't talk about it. It's just more of like a stoic, let it go and just move on. But if that happens over time, what's the difference cognitively or, or neurologically, if, if one is more likely to suppress over time, the dangers of that versus the reframing as what you're saying right here? Clearly, you know, I think you, you never want to suppress anything. We are, we are, I'm a believer in holography, which means that if you fragmented yourself into a million pieces, somebody could pick up one of you and they would see everything. They'd see the psychologist. They'd see the wrestler. They'd see the entrepreneur. They'd see the father. They'd see the family person. They would see everything and every little piece of you. And so I've never really believed in compartmentalizing because it will eat, it will leach out into different areas. So if I've had a bad day, I don't want to suppress that when I come home. I don't have to give my wife every single detail of my day or what happened, but I need to let her know that it's, it's been a tough day and, you know, it's been, I'm stressed out and I'm kind of, I'm drained, but, you know, but I'm going to be okay. And just, I just wanted you to know that. And that's really what it, what it needs to be. So it truly is important for that. Now, having said that, and you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but there are some athletes that like to focus on the negative and they're very, very effective. I think it's a small percentage, but I coached my son, one of my sons 
was one of those guys who wanted to know, what do I do when this goes wrong? What do I do when this goes wrong? What do I do when this goes wrong? And I was kind of like, I don't, don't think about that stuff. Think about all the positive stuff. But I think there are some athletes out there that, that are not comfortable until they've listed every single thing that could possibly go wrong, even just before the match, and, they, and, they, and then they get on there. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, there are a lot of people who speak about that. Tim Ferriss, another uh, Princeton uh, person, he's, he said that one of the things he likes to do is write down what's the absolute worst case scenario and then how would I deal with it if it should happen. So that's, that's one of the exercises we give our, our athletes because we don't just work with wrestlers, we work with all the athletes. Now we've actually moved into business and working with high performance professionals. But what we'll say to them is that's one tool in your toolkit. Think of the worst case scenario and how will you deal with it. Now, you don't want that to be your predominant strategy, right? Exactly. You would prefer, I'd, I'd prefer people focusing on what you want as opposed to what you don't want. If you're golfing, I don't want you to say to yourself, don't hit the ball in the water because even though that's the correct command, your brain thinks in terms of the subject first and then the negation. So you think, hit the ball in the water. Oh, no, don't do this. Kind of like when we say, don't think of the big pink elephant. You think of the big pink elephant, you say, no, no, don't do that. So you're better off telling yourself when you're golfing, don't hit the ball straight, even though it's the wrong command, because your brain here is hit the ball straight. Right. So, right, but, but, there are, but there are some athletes, just some people in general, that they, they like to know what are the contingencies if things go wrong. And I, th I think that's a healthy thing as long as you're not focusing it on, on it that much. I would prefer more of a three-to-one, even as high as a five-to-one ratio, of positives to the negatives. You might be able to speak better to what's, what's going on uh, neurologically there. And there is one other thing related to what you're saying. In my personality psychology class, there are some people who perform better with self-handicapping strategies. So my dad is actually, and I think he's watching, he's the, he's the poster boy for this, where he'll say, oh, you know, like if he's, if he's shooting the basketball, say, look at this wind. Or, oh, look, I've never played basketball in my life. And then he'll do really well. So it's kind of like he got out the excuse and then he was able to do it. So some people do perform better with that self-handicapping strategy. Um, you might frustrate the people that are around you. And if you're on a team sport, they might not like that. But, you know, overall, like I said, I'm always thinking in terms of the long term, just like you are. It's not just about the performance today. It's also the impact you're having on the people around you. And it's what does this look like long term? I get it. At a tournament, it might be beneficial to suppress. Because, I mean, you do, want to, you do want to reframe the situation going on, but okay, let it go and forget about it and now move forward. That being said, that has to be addressed with your mindset coach, sports psychologist, whoever, after the tournament to make sure that doesn't happen again. Suppression doesn't work long term. Right, right. And it's interesting. I've had this conversation with Nate Zinzer um, up at West Point, and, and you know, they, I've been asked many times, like, do you, do you experience flow in the operating room? And I say, it's not like the kind of flow that you have in, a, in an athletic event. Um, because I do need to be thinking about all the dangerous vessels, right. nerves around each corner. And there are anatomical variations as well. So when I'm dissecting uh, muscle tissue off of the top of the spine, and I'm coming around and there's a big vertebral artery around, it could be half a centimeter away or could be a centimeter and a half away, I've got to be, I've got to be saying to myself, beware of the vertebral artery, right. beware of the vertebral artery, beware of the vertebral artery. But at the same time, I've got to be fluid in my motions and not paralyzed by that. So it's an interesting 
step-by-step uh, -step performance. And I, I, that's what I love about surgery is it's a performance-based skill right. that, you know, you've got to, you've got to come with your game on. I have my pregame routine. You should see me before Excellent. I'm still neck out and rolling my arms out before surgery, wiggling my fingers. Um, I've got, I go to my scrub nurse. I'll tell them, tell them exactly what I want in the order that I want it. Um, and, you know, you'd be surprised. It, it's, it's not, it doesn't always happen in the OR where they get those kinds of instructions right away. And then I talk about the patient. I have my five piece, my routine, which kind of gets me into my, my state of closest to flow that I can get. And that's with, you know, I pause, I think about this patient, who is this particular patient? Why are they on this operating room table? You know, what, what has, you know, what, what has come to this point where they need surgery? Then I think about, you know, um, you know, what is my plan? What are the specific aspects? I'm, what are my steps of the surgery? Then I put out a positive thought. You know, this is an amazing um, privilege that you have. Don't ever take it for granted. Someone has entrusted their life in you. It's a great honor. Now let's do your very best for them. And then lastly, I say a prayer. And, um, you know, the prayer for me, um, you know, they may say it doesn't, doesn't change the outcome of a surgery, but it's always changing me. And it's always part of my, um, my routine to get better. That's great. That's great. And, and the, the routine is big. The, the, the gratitude is very big in any type of performance. A lot of times people are too nervous because they're not thinking that it is an opportunity. They get to compete. Uh, you know, you look at the NCAAs, that didn't happen this year. That's what happens when the opportunity is taken from you. That could happen at any time with an injury or anything else. So that's, those are big, any, any performance, I mean, performance is performance, whether you're in surgery, wrestling match, SATs right. or ACTs, job interview, basically, exactly. you know, do you have those tools or not? And, and, and I think the beautiful thing is that you've applied that from wrestling to the best of your ability, of course, taking into account the little nuances that are different. It's absolutely true. And like you, you know, like you said, and if it's in business or it's parenting or it's, you know, going to the operating room, we all have a locker room that we got to go to. We have a uniform that we put on. We have to step into a hallowed ground and we have to perform. And um, it's the same whether you're trying to talk to your kid about, you know, good choices and, um, who, you know, how to pick good friends and, um, you know, how to do things in moderation or whether you're trying to persuade your partners on something that you really see the future in that maybe they don't see the future in at this time, but um, it's, it's something that's important and you know that's going to be good for your, for your business. So it's, it's really the same. It's just a matter of, um, what what vestments you're wearing and what what tools you're using, but it's the same process. Absolutely. And now one of the things that that I remember learning in my doctoral program was about that when when you're in a good mood, when you're um, basically more positive and in a good mood, you're better. You're more of a flexible thinker. You have better creativity, better ability to adapt when when things don't go necessarily according to plan. They've done. I guess, research on being able to take tests, negotiating overseas, like in ambassadors at different countries. You're just more of a flexible thinker, more creative with it. Um, when, you're, when you're in that, you don't have to be in a great mood, but in a slightly good mood. Like you said, being an attitude of gratitude. I get to be here. You know, I, I want to do this. Can you right. talk a little bit about the, uh, maybe the physiology or neurology? What's, what's going on in the brain when you're in that, when you're in that good mood, that positive mood? 
to facilitate performance, to facilitate that flow state? Well, um, sort of two thoughts to that. One, and it really centers around sleep. Um, I find for myself personally, if I haven't gotten a decent amount of sleep, I'm not going to be uh, as I'm not going to be in as much of a good mood, or I may be in a bad mood. That's and I true. that happens, you know. That ha sometimes you got to stay up late to do your business report or you write your paper, and that happens. But you need to recognize that the next day you will not be performing at your best, and you need to kind of minimize interactions that might be abrasive. And I try very hard on those days to quote minimize my damage, uh, which uh, I got from a book called. Uh, Shut up, stop whining, and get to work. I can't remember the author, but it was a great book. And you got to kind of minimize those dates if you can to get back into your into your mode. Um, but I think also, and I talk about this in my book, is um, you can really think about life uh, as an X and Y axis on a coordinate system. And it's kind of funny to think that you could reduce it to that. But I mean, that's what Descartes did, and that's what. You know, that's what the scientists did is they broke things down. So let's say if you think about the worldly things, the material things in the world, and you put that on the x-axis and everything on the positive x-axis is good stuff, good fortune. Maybe you have a good um, financial day for your business. Um, maybe it's uh, an acquisition, uh, something like that. And on the negative x-axis is when you have to take a loss or you get hit, your business gets hit with a COVID virus and it's a negative objective thing and then on the y-axis you, you chart your life goals and things that are most important to you and things that you you don't identify yourself with on the negative side of those things so in other words you know being a good person uh, being a compassionate person um, not lying being altruistic those are on the positive y-axis and maybe on the negative axis is not being the best person you could be or being angry with someone, losing your temper, or maybe it's worse. Maybe it's not living up to the ideals that you have, okay? So if you're on the X and Y axis, every event that hits us in our life, every event you can map as a material gain or material loss and as a spiritual gain or a spiritual loss. Now, when those events are positive, um, both X and Y, that's an area where you're most likely to be uh, potential for flow. That's where you can really hit your groove and you can do what do. Don't think about that when that happens. Just go with it. Don't let your brain interfere with what's going on. But let's say something materially good happens to you, but spiritually, not spiritually, maybe um, on an on a intellectual basis is, is bad and a philosophical basis is bad, such as let's say you get a job promotion, but then you realize your new boss is a terrible person to work with and he's or she is making you do something that, you know, you know is unethical and you're stuck and you got to, you got to deal with this. So now you're in the lower quadrant, you're in a positive material, but a negative spiritual philosophical area. That's what I call the calm before the storm. That means, <clears throat> excuse me, something's going to happen. Something's got to happen. If you want to continue to live, living, you're actually doing something that you, your mind knows is not completely right. Okay. Then let's say it's both negative. Let's say it's something horrific, like you get diagnosed with cancer or something. Oh my God, that's objectively terrible. And it's also subjectively terrible. It's philosophically terrible. That's what I call the all is lost quadrant. And again, that's, you're going to get hit with those things. That's when nothing is going right. 
That's when you do everything right and still something bad happens. That happens to every one of us, right? And we've got to figure out a way to climb our way back to where we go up to the next quadrant, which is called the birthing a new skill set quadrant. And the birthing a new skill set quadrant, that's when things are objectively negative, but subjectively positive. Those are the things where we say to people, you know, that was a terrible thing that happened to me. And it was also the best thing that ever happened in my life because I learned something really important. And although it was a lot of suffering, I'm better for it now. And I'm in a much better state of mind and my life is moving on. And that's when we trickle back over into the flow zone. So it's this constant navigation between these zones. You're either in one of these four zones whenever you get hit with something. And if you can figure that out, if you know where you are, you can sort of understand, hey, this is the game of life. This is the heroic journey. This is what I need to move on to become better and better and better and better and better. So that's sort of what I talk about in my book is how you need to deal with these unexpected events. And yeah, you may have a bad mood about it, but recognizing it helps you get through it and helps you become a stronger person and a more effective person. Right. And now how does that relate with, with when um, Descartes? So I, I didn't read your book yet, but I've, I saw the chapters and there was one on, on Descartes. Now, and I know you said before about you can't compartmentalize, but isn't that exactly what Descartes did? He compartmentalized. He drove a Cartesian divide between the body and the soul. Wow, that's, that's good. I'm impressed with your philosophical uh, uh, impressions of it. Well, I, would, I mean, when I say he married two things, when he brought things together, he brought algebra and geometry together. So by using the Cartesian coordinate system, he, he actually mapped out he was able to explain shapes with algebra, which is a very interesting concept, something called consilience, which I'm a big believer in. And consilience is sort of believing that there is a common thread of very, very finite rules or maxims in this world that apply across all sciences. So, for instance, when we can take two ideas and prove them in different sciences, we know we're on more solid ground. Einstein's theory of relativity, verified by math, verified by physics, verified by astronomy. Wow, that's a solid piece of information that we know is, is absolutely unified. So when I, when I said uh, Descartes, um, basically, I, I agree with you. He talked about the duality of the mind and the soul philosophically. But what I meant really more was that he, he was able to take two totally different concepts and bring a common thread through them. And I believe that there is that common thread in life that we can marry the sciences and the humanities. Um, just as we, as I talk about when we map things, like even if you think about, you know, the, it, you could also flip the X axis is not just material gains. It's also the left brain and the Y axis is your right brain. Cause your, your right brain is kind of the more, um, theoretical, you know, it, it's the right from wrong kind of brain. It's the lateralization. It's the phantasmic concepts, the dream state. That's more right hemisphere. And then the left hemisphere is more logical and executive and obtaining things, getting promotions, getting raises, those kinds of things. So you can think of it in a number of different ways. But I think that um, I think that they go together. And I think that, you know, on the whole, uh, if you think about them both, 
you'll understand that they, they all, they, they do fit together. Yeah, well, they would have to fit together. I mean, once you said about the math and the geometry, that's not, that's not my area. Okay, we talk about the psychology, we talk about the philosophy, even, even kind of what you were saying actually even goes into the theology because, and I know you speak about spirituality in, in your book and you, and you said before, um, I would say, of course, they're unified. I think about they would be unified in the logos, right? The Greek word for, for reason, rationality in John chapter one. Now we're, now we're getting totally off, but um, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that word was logos and the logos is behind everything. Biology, psychology, physiology, the, the logos ties in all of reason, all knowledge, all of truth together, uh, unified because it's all coming from the same mind. Uh, that being the mind of God there. But maybe we're beyond the scope of this topic. <laughs> well, one of the things I say um, is, you know, people, I, I'll give this talk in a grand rounds lecture and I'll talk about faith. And we know scientifically that people with faith have lower incidence of heart disease, have lower incidence of stroke, have lower incidence of depression. They live longer. I mean, it's very, there's scientific proof to it. Um, but I see a lot of people who are, um, uh, who, who are not spiritual. They say, oh, faith, you know, that I'm not part of that. This is not part of the scientific lecture. My answer to them is the truest definition of faith is being on the right path. And that being part of a team, being part of a team in a medical team, being part of an athletic team, being part of a business team, that's an expression of faith. That's, a tr that's one of the truest expressions of faith. So faith doesn't have to be spiritual to, to be real and also to be completely effective and powerful in your success. I, all right. I, so I think, I guess, I guess the way I kind of make sense of that. So when we speak to athletes about confidence, you look at the Latin roots of confidence, confidere, which means to trust. So to have trust. So confidence, confidere, to trust, to trust your coworkers, to trust your teammates, to trust your coach, to trust the, um, the information that you've learned to trust God. So that I, I, does, does that sound right? I would add the word faith to that. Having faith in yourself is being on the right path, having faith in your teammates. And, um, and you know, that, that does not need to be a, a spiritual, uh, non-secular view. It could be, it could be whatever, whatever you believe your, your faith is, whatever your path is. If you're exercising actions in accordance with that, then you are on the you are on the right path, and you're exercising faith. Okay, I guess what I think about then is then what about like the gang member, or someone who's part of a mafia or something? They have they have can we rightfully say they have faith because there it's it, faith or, or maybe that's then faith. You're saying faith that's not channeled properly. You would say they still have faith, but not a, a rightly ordered faith. Yeah, I mean, I would say that they're not they're not uh something that's amoral um someone could could believe that they have faith but that path is not correct there's no question of that um and you know committing amoral acts uh would be a would be a false sense of faith yeah the right. wrong i just saw uh somebody comment the wrong path exactly there are wrong paths too yeah okay so then uh, now, okay, other things, because I have a whole list of questions for you, and I'm going down all kinds of rabbit holes. <laughs> okay. Over, Overthinking. 
we see athletes all the time. They're, they're overthinking. They're thinking about not letting down their parents. They're not they're, They don't want it. They're looking up at the team score. What's my opponent ranked? What happened the last time we met? They got all this stuff going on in their head. What's, what's going on in their brain when they're overthinking versus when they're having a clear mind? Well, it's their amygdala taking over, which is your primitive reptilian brain that was designed, you know, thousands of years ago to protect us. And it's highly effective. But just like on your computer, when you get, you know, uh, Word, whatever it is now, 11.0 or whatever, all of your previous fear systems are still, still running in your brain. So you have a neocortex that, you know, can think, can outthink things. Uh, but if you're listening to your amygdala, it's not going to happen. So there's a great story of the, the caveman who goes into the cave and draws a picture on the wall of a tiger and then sees the tiger and then gets scared and runs away, you know? I mean, and we think that's kind of silly, but isn't that what we do with our mind every day? We, we, we construct these fearful things and then we get scared and anxious about it. And we, then we have poor coping strategies and avoid, you know, addressing the thing that needs to get addressed. So it's, it's sort of the same thing. Um, so I think it's, it's important to, um, you know, with any, you know, with any endeavor, I think a couple things, one that I love the Derek Jeter philosophy, like, there's no such thing as a big game. There's a game. I don't care if it's a pickup, wiffle ball game out back, or if it's the World Series. I'm playing the same way every single day. Love that. Right. Always... Um, secondly is routines. It will always get you back in. I remember, and I talk about this in, my, uh, in one of my talks uh, at West Point, is one day I was coming down on this spinal cord tumor at the junction of where the brain and the spinal cord meet, in the medulla which as you know, you may know, uh, is the respiratory center. Truly the automatic mo uh, functions of your body are controlled by your medulla. And I realized that like one tiny false move or one overly um, excessive retraction or pulling on this tumor could tear a blood vessel and could cause a small stroke or a large stroke in the medulla. And one of the rarest complications that we can have in this area is something called Ondine's curse. And that's when a patient can't fall asleep because when they fall asleep, they stop breathing. So they could never, never fall asleep. And that's a known complication from surgery in this area. And as I was coming down on this tumor and it was a really bloody, tenuous, um, stuck down tumor, that was not dissecting nice and smoothly. We usually can shave it off. It was stuck. I, I thought for my second, oh my God, you're in over your head. Like you, you, you can't get this tumor out. Um, and then I, and, and in a split second, you know, there's just sheer panic in my mind. Like I, I took on something that I wasn't capable of doing. Uh, and you know, those, ex those experiences happen to any surgeon they also happen to people doing other hard things, whatever they may be. Um, and you're going to hear a voice in your head that says, you can't do this. And um, what I did in that instance was I just kind of went back to my very, very basic neurosurgery concepts. Get around the enemy, shrink the enemy, take its blood supply along the edges so it doesn't bleed, shrink it and remove it. Get around it, shrink it, remove it. Get around it, shrink it, remove it. For a wrestler that might be Keep head control, yeah. keep wrist control, keep move your, your feet, control, yeah. you know, move your feet, whatever that may be. Back if to basics, basics. Yeah. If it's a business meeting, 
It's focus on whatever this customer wants. Three things they want. Every time they start talking about something, bring it back to what they want. It's the same in, in anything. Uh, it's the same basic in parenting. When you want to discipline your child and you realize, that I cannot do this in anger. This is, this, is not, right. this is not retribution. I'm trying, I'm acting as a proxy of society for my child to help correct their behavior so that someday in the future, somebody else doesn't correct it for them when they'll right. do it a lot faster than I do. So it's truly re reaching back to those basics, I think, and, um, and, and reviewing those. So you got to have some mantras. You got to always have some mantras. Right. Now, does something happen phys physiologically in the body and, the, and neurologically in the brain when, uh, so if I could sum up pretty much everything I learned about anxiety, my doctoral program, it was, you have to approach that which makes you nervous. Right. If you if you never approach that. So whatever makes you scared, you got to go after it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean if you're afraid of the water, you have to jump in right away. But maybe you start with your toes and then you work to your knees and then you work to your waist and so on. Right. There's always the, the foot in the door versus door in the face. But you have to approach whatever's making you nervous, whatever's making you scared. Now, if you do that enough times, kind of like getting comfortable being uncomfortable, with those nerves, does anything happen in the brain or in the body where you start to you start to feel the well, you don't feel the, the amygdala, but you get that sense and you and you start to become not numb to it, but you're able to ignore it or move through it, where this is no longer a threat when I get this amygdala signal. Exactly. What you do is you reduce. So all of our thought processes are literally from nerve A to B to C to D to D to, to E. So it's one of those yeah. things where there is a Highway. There are different little local pathways, and there are more major uh, thoroughfares. And each one of those pathways runs along. And think about, like, let's say there's the perfect execution pathway. And let's say that's a pathway you don't ride as much as you want to. But if you can gradually train your mind to control that anxiety, to you, you need some of it. It's a critical right. ingredient performance. Uh, you know, it's like the right amount of salt in a recipe. It's got to be there if you have it it's bland and if you have too much of it it's not edible um so right. you need to balance that but if you can start pruning those little offshoots of mind and and gradually train your mind on the 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 major thoroughfare you're going to have a more efficient um and 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 more effective pathway that's going to more likely put you in the performance. You know, that's that's an important point. I think, uh, you know, people need to understand is you can't always be in flow. Um, right. If we're always in flow, life would get very boring. <laughs> life would get very right. boring. So you need those kinds of things to, you want to have the flow or you want to create the environment for flow right. as much as you can. And then if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't happen, right. and it's every day in the OR, then you, you need to go the best viable performance you need to get the job done in, in, in any field. Um, so it, it is a neurochemical, biological, think of it as like pruning trees to get them to grow where they want to grow, where you want them to grow. Right. You're not, you're not forcing it to happen. You're, you're facilitating it. You're allowing it to happen. You're, you're, you're cultivating an environment to allow that to flourish if it should come about. Yeah, it's like creating micro habits of, of, of the, your neural pathways, you know. So when you get home from work, 
just put on your running shoes every day automatically. You're, you're already five times more likely to go for a run just by putting right. on your shoes, right? And so it's the same thing with your mind. I'm going to recognize distractions and I'm going to halt myself from saying that this is a bad omen. So that's probably the first step, you know, to, for, for a negative thinker. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to acknowledge um, a negative, a negative uh, uh, event as an omen uh, or something that's going to portend more. Maybe I'll adopt the attitude, oh, good, we got the one bad thing out of our system. Now we're, now we're on track, you know? So yeah. it, it's figuring out what, how you can trick your mind into that positive mindset. The good, news is, yeah. the good news is, and I'm sure you've read the book, The Optimum Bias, we are genetically, inherently, most people are, we're overly optimistic thinkers, you know? If you poll a group of, you know, 100 people and say, how many people here think they're going to get divorced in their life? A small percentage of them raise their hand, you know? When we know it's 50% or maybe even higher. So, you know, if you say, if we all went down to uh, Atlantic City, uh, how many people think they, they would win? More than 50% of people raise their hand automatically. So there already is an optimum bias, but we need to kind of coax it out more and, and coax it out in more productive ways. Right, right. I think I, I learned the calibration curve. Curve When we say we're 100% sure of something, it's, it's actually right only 70% of the time. <laughs> so that's a, that's a scary thought. Okay, right. So a couple other quick questions for you all great information so now if a wrestler hurts their right arm if they train with their left arm does that have any carryover as far as strength and now how about dexterity if, if if you're doing fine motor movements with your left hand does that have an impact on the right can we do that if we're injured and and same with our legs i guess absolutely and there's strong science to support that in people that have strokes, they do uh, mirror therapy and rehabilitation. Or if you have a paralyzed left arm, what they'll do is they'll put you in front of a mirror and have to your right arm, which looks like your left arm, and it can clearly increase neural activity. In, di in addition, you know, the, you know, we have two hemispheres. We, we're basically, there are some mirror activities within neural, right. and neural circuitry. So it's absolutely true. And if you exercise one arm physiologically, the, there's going to be muscle growth in the other arm. So it's 100% true. Right. That, that makes me think of uh, Ramachandran talking about the phantom limb and being able to open on the other side with the, what's that called? The box, the not Skinner's box, Pan, not Pandora's box. What, what's that called? <laughs> but it's, the, you know, what Ramachandran, you know what I'm talking about? Phantom limb? Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I don't know what the, I don't know what they call the box. Maybe it wasn't a box. Maybe it was just a mirror. Maybe I'm. Maybe I just have a, a lot of things going on in my head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's one side, other side of the body carrying over. Okay. So now, what 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 can we do as we get older to keep our brain sharp? Is there anything we could do to maybe I wouldn't say if you could pre prevent Alzheimer's, but put that off to keep our mind sharp and just to be thinking sharp well into our later years. Yeah, and that's something called building up your cognitive reserve. And that's preserved. And that's just like exercising your muscles. I gave a talk out at 10th Special Forces at it, uh, Fort Carson uh, last year because they're worried about traumatic brain injury and, you know, uh, these repetitive minor explosions that the, the soldiers are experiencing from breaching walls, blowing up walls to go rescue people, and, um, and also from firing these high powered Carl Gustav guns. And, um, 
this, the data, what it shows is, is that the higher intellect you take into any brain injury, whether it's repetitive brain injuries or it's a single brain injury, or the higher intellect you take into a degenerative neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's disease, the better you're going to be, the less symptomatic you're going to be, and sometimes you're, you're not going to actually manifest the disease. There are pathologists that have looked at brains that have the stigma on the, on the microscope, under the microscope, they have the stigmata of Alzheimer's disease. And when they ask families, did your loved one have Alzheimer's disease? And they'll say, no, they were highly intelligent up to the age of 94. And they read and they were a, you know, a retired teacher and they read three newspapers and all these different things that kept their minds going. So just like we're strengthening our muscles, we're building our muscle mass and our bone strength going into old age, you need to do that cognitively. And so what I tell people is it's important to consume information continuously. Um, and I'm a strong believer in reading, um, either listening to books or actually physically reading. Um, if you can do that, there are many, many studies that show that the neural pathways remain active well beyond after your activity of reading. And so, um, I mean, look around you when you see people who are thriving in, in, in old age, they're constantly curious about life. They're, they're asking questions, they're taking courses, they're learning. So it, it's, there's no different. I mean, the brain is not a muscle, but it acts like a muscle in that you can strengthen it. And think about it, if, you've, you, know, if you have memorized you know, 10,000 vocabulary words, and you have a small stroke in your speech area, you're going to have a much more likely chance to regain your speech because you got more tools to, to use to reach out for it. So um, that's an important thing you can do. And then the second thing I say is don't insult your brain. There are plenty of ways we insult our brain, okay? Right. Um, smoking. Um, alcohol is a neurotoxin. <clears throat> it insults the brain continuously. Not taking your blood pressure medicine insults your brain. Preventable strokes happen when you don't control your blood pressure. Get your vaccines. If you don't get the pneumococcal vaccine when you're older, you'll get pneumococcal meningitis and you can die from meningitis. Make regular dental appointments. You can get an abscess in your teeth that can go in your blood and go to your brain. I've seen people die of abscesses in the brain because of poor dental hygiene. These are simple, reversible things. Um, lastly, look at your environment as you get older. Look at your house. You know, flip-flops, they're not healthy and safe shoes for elderly people. They should not be in the house. You need good sneakers, balanced sneakers, no high heels, step stools, um, dangerous for people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Get them out of the kitchen and get all of your things you reach for on the first and second shelf. Get night lights to illuminate your light. Your eyes can't contract like they normally do in darkness. And so you're going to trip over things when you don't see them. You could buy a pack of 10 lights at Costco and put them all over your house. And it costs you, you know, 20 bucks. It's going to prevent a fall. Most people, uh, elderly people, one of the most debilitating injuries is a fall. If you can prevent a fall with keeping your stairs clear of debris, having proper shoes, um, lighting areas properly. And last thing I would say is when you get up in the morning, sit, stand, 
Before you stand, sit and stabilize. Sit, stabilize, stand. Spend 30 seconds to a minute letting your blood pressure accommodate itself because your vessels are a little slower in squeezing that blood to your brain. And if you get up too quickly, your blood's going to sink out and you're going to faint. And, you know, that's, that's a preventable tragedy. I mean, I, I take care of people with falls and injuries all the time. And, of course, wearing a helmet. I mean, you go skiing, wear a helmet. Whenever you're on a high-velocity sport, wear a helmet. It's, it's, it's critically important. That's how you don't insult your brain. Excellent. That was, that was phenomenally practical. <laughs> when you said insult your brain right away, I'm thinking a lot of people tell themselves, oh, I forget everything. And I'm saying, don't, don't reaffirm something that you wish were not true. Tell yourself you're good at it, even if you're not. That's what I thought right away. But those are other. Yeah, exactly. Great. You know, it's funny. I talk to a lot of people say, am I getting Alzheimer's because I have trouble finding the word and I forget. And I, one of the things I tell them is like your brain, um, stores things in silos it stores things in different silos so let's say i'm thinking of a kid on my trenton youth wrestling team i can't remember his name the first thing you should do is start saying the names of the other people and the coaches on that team because that's going to get mind thinking about that area and then all of a sudden it's going to flow out because you've entered that silo and you can do that with with anything you have trouble forgetting it's normal to to have these mental hiccups over time and that's not something people should worry about just think in silos and that can that can help that excellent that's great now the other thing i thought about with memory and um memory and ramachandran i think the synesthesia so i don't is that is that um can, does that help performance i don't know how does how is that related to performance i know in some ways with memory tasks it helps is it helpful and if so is there a way we could train ourselves to be more of a synesthete. <laughs> well, so synesthesia. Or do we not want that? <laughs> synesthesia is the stimulation of one part of the body that actually induces a sensation or a feeling in the other part of the body. Um, and I do think that from a sports psychology standpoint, that's a, that's a great technique. Um, maybe slightly different, but at least envisioning these types of things. And I'm sure you've used this technique with your clients that Nate Zinzer has taught me. And I, I use it in the OR sometimes too, is I think about my great operation or I think about my great match and I go back and I think about what were the colors of the mat? What was the smell? What was the time of day? How did I feel? What are those things? And to kind of get myself in that reboot, reboot feeling performance. Uh, one time I was doing a case and it was a, I knew it was going to be a really hard five, six hour case for starting it at two 30 in the afternoon. And I just, for like a split second, I was like, it's not two thirds in the afternoon, seven 30 in the morning. First start, you just had the perfect amount of coffee. You're going to finish this baby at, at one o'clock and you're going to go have a nice lunch. And, you know, did it totally take me out of the reality? No, but it, it's a kickstart and it gets you going. So I think that's sure. that in that sense, you can, use the stimulate stimulate one area of your mind that's going to get the other part going so bring so it's almost like if you were listening to a song before you competed really well last time or there was a certain smell you bring that into the next performance exactly yes exactly excellent excellent the colors, sounds everything excellent and we tell our athletes yeah you bring that into your visualization now that's great and then the, and the other thing i think about is um Hypnosis, neuro-linguistic neuro programming, auto-suggestion. Does it work? Is it a long-term fix? Is it more of a short-term thing? 
what do you know about that? You know, I don't know a lot about hypnosis, but I do think that it definitely works in some patients. So it really depends on the personality uh, of people, but it's, it's really not an area that, you know, that I, I utilize a lot. I use, I'll, you know, I'll refer patients more for pain control, for biofeedback um, and for meditation, which I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, in meditation. Um, but, you know, uh, and, and I have had some people have success with hypnosis. Yeah, it, it seems like you're more like along our lines with your reframing, reframing, reappraisal of the situation, looking exactly. at what are the positives here. Excellent. Exactly. Uh, tremendous information. Excellent. Man, this, this hour just flew by. Where, where can people find more from you? How could they get the book? Do you have other materials they could get? How do we send them your way? Sure. Thanks. Well, I, uh, my website is markmclaughlinmd.com, and there's a number of talks that I've given like that, how to age well. Uh, it's called the Best Life, uh, Best Life Ever Talk. That's a video that's on my YouTube channel. Um, you can get the book on Amazon, uh, amazon.com, uh, you know, Cognitive Dominance. Um, it's, uh, some other, some of my other talks are on, uh, cognitive dominance. Uh, there's a talk called the old guard lecture, which is also on my website. And I do, uh, write a blog and some articles for business insider, which you can find on my website. Excellent. Any, um, research articles for any of the people like me that might want to look in that? Well, I'm not a basic, uh, you know, scientist. Um, so my articles are more about, um, routines, um, things that I found in neurosurgery that kind of apply to life. You know, originally my book was going to be the 10 rules of neurosurgery applied to applied to neurosurgery business and life. And what I realized was these rules were probably, you know, good heuristics for, for anyone. And they just kind of, somebody applied them to neurosurgery, like never worry about a patient alone. And that could translate to other people, like never worry about a problem alone, you know, never worry about anything alone. Why, why would you do that? You want to get, talk to other people and get their opinions, right? Or Absolutely. always leave a drain. In neurosurgery, always leave a drain means always have a safety valve, always have an escape hatch, always be ready to have to abort the surgery and get and live to fight another day and help this patient make it through the emergency. So those are the kinds of things that, um, that I write about. Um, awesome. And, um, you know, I, I'll cite research a lot. I cite a lot of the research that's coming out in Science, Science America and and those sorts of magazines, but um, my my research is more sort of observational. Excellent, excellent, Dr. Mark McLaughlin. Thank you very much. Super exciting. I've, I'm sure our audience loved it. I saw all the thumbs up, all the hearts flying up while we were speaking. Thank you very much for your time and all the great information. Thanks for the opportunity. Good luck. Absolutely. You too. Take care. Bye. 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 And that is a wrap from today's podcast. I'm Gene Zanetti from Winning Mindset. Make sure you guys go to our website. Make sure you go to zwinningmindset.com. Make sure you buy the book. The ebook is great, excellent information, represents some of the great information that we've learned from top athletes working with some of the top teams and individuals all across the country. Go to our website, zwinningmindset.com. Make sure you get the ebook. Also, Make sure as an individual, you sign up for the one-on-one -on -one free trial consultation. That's the one-on-one -on -one free trial consultation with one of our mindset coaches. The best results always come from one-on-one -on -one attention, whether it's strength training, whether it's technique, or whether it's mindset. One-on-one -on -one is always the best. Thanks for staying with us. Make sure you join us next time for the next episode. 
Mindset makes the difference. Have a great day.